So if you are sitting there at home and you've got your own copy of scripture, it's first Peter three, 18 through 22. And, um, I have the, the new American standard Bible I have up here on the screen in the room. And, uh, then, uh, I'm going to be teaching from that and the ESV, both of, uh, of which are pretty literal translations. So, um, for those of you that are on Zoom, I'm going to do a share screen with the New American Standard Version, and uh, and then we're gonna we're gonna do that together. So, um, well, let's see. Hang on. Let me see if I did that right. Share screen, NASB. There we go. All right. Can you guys that are online? Can you see that uh, that New American Standard passage of scripture? Do you see that? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Good, good, good. All right. So I'm going to go up a few verses um, so that we can get in the flow of the scripture here in the continuum of the context. So I'm going to jump up to verse 13 uh, in NASB. It has that bolded. You can see that right there. So NASB uh, separates verse by verse by verse unless you get the unless you get the paragraph edition, which up here. Uh, on the screen, uh, it doesn't make a verse separation. It's just all in one block there. Um, but uh, Peter writes, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's verse 13. But if it, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that if you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now for tonight's scriptures, uh, verses. For Christ died, or Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, that is in the spirit, he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Um, I'm just going to this first verse is one that it would be good if you memorize. I actually I memorized it in New American Standard for Christ also suffered or died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring that he might bring us to God. Um, some ancient manuscripts read uh, Christ suffered once for sins. So um, we know that Christ suffered and died, and many of the more contemporary translators have gone with uh, the manuscripts that say suffered rather than the manuscripts that say died, primarily because the previous verses are talking about Christ's suffering and us suffering. Either way, it's the same idea. 
Christ suffered and died for our sins. We've already seen in First uh, Peter two twenty four. Uh, where it said he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin um, and live to righteousness for by his stripes, you are healed. So that whole by his stripes idea is not the cross, but the, the, uh, the beating that Christ received beforehand. And of course that's referring to the suffering that Christ went through. And that is a part of the atonement. All right. Um, this idea of he, he suffered once for sins. Some translations will say once for all. And there can be confusion there that uh, this means once for all people. Well, Christ did suffer and die for all people. That's certainly made clear in scripture. Uh, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Not some people in the world, but the whole world, all people in the world. All right. Uh, for Christ died for all folks, all people, everybody, everywhere. Um, if you go to, um, and we taught through, I taught through First Timothy uh, a ways back, but if you go over to First Timothy chapter 2, um, you see, this is good. This is chapter, First Timothy 2, verses 3 and following. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, not some, all, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So although this doesn't mean in this particular context, Christ suffered for sins uh, once for all people or died for sins once for all people. Um, he did die for all people. No, what it means is it's the Greek word hapax. And uh, in fact, there's a lexical term, a hapax legomena, which means a term that is only used one time in the Greek New Testament, right? Um, the reason why some translations say once for all is because it means that he died once for all time. Um, so that's what the New Living Translation says, once for all time. So what we need to understand is the timeless God sees the, the sacrifice of Christ as if it were being offered today. God is not tied to time. He's not locked in what we call the present. Uh, the almighty God, the timeless God, sees the past, the present, and the future the same way you see the present, right? He can simply pay attention to what he chooses to pay attention to. So that's a very powerful thought when you consider Christ's death on the cross. That never leaves the mind of our God. He's always seeing that. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ is constantly dying on the cross. So uh, in Catholic theology, the sacrifice of the mass means that every time a mass is held, what we would call a service, every time they, um, they observe what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, every time they, they offer the, the, the wafer and, and the cup, they believe that Christ is sacrificed again on the cross. But that is not, uh, although that is a theological accretion that took place in the Catholic Church over years, it is definitely not a part of the original text of Scripture. In fact, that's what we see here. This term hapax means that Christ suffered and died one time. 
He's not offering himself over and over and over again. I've even heard preachers say um, each and every time we sin, we necessitate the death of Christ on the cross again. Well, that's that's a difficult thing to think about. Um, so while that is technically true, we're making necessary the sacrifice of Christ on the cross every time we sin because only the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection give us that bridge, if you will, from where we are to where God is, the atonement. That doesn't mean that Christ is offered again and again on the cross, okay? And there's another uh, passage of scripture. Um, Paul reinforces this idea of Christ only offering himself once when he states in Romans, quote, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death is no, uh, is no longer master over him. So Christ died for sins once he doesn't die again. That was Romans six, nine, by the way. And then the writer to the Hebrews agrees when he says, quote, he entered the holy place once for all. And once again, this is the idea of once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus cried out tetelestai in Greek, which means it is finished. He meant that redemption is complete. There's nothing else that needs to be added. Well, that includes our works. You and I are created for good works that we should walk in them, according to Ephesians 2.10. But that doesn't mean that our works are necessary in any way for our redemption. We can't add to the atonement. You can't add or subtract anything from what Christ did on the cross. And so that's a very, very significant idea that is found here in this text. Then listen to the continuation of that idea in Hebrews 9.24. What I read to you a moment ago was 9.12. This is Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, and it's talking about the temple or the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, no, this is not like the sacrificial system of the Jewish people, which is a continual reminder of the need for sacrifice. No, in fact, the entire sacrificial system, and most importantly, uh, the, uh, the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, pointed to that one time in history when Christ offered himself on the cross and then entered the more perfect tabernacle in heaven and with his own blood made atonement for us. Let me continue. Um, so the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own and our Savior, our Messiah, does not do that. Our high priest does not do that, because if he did, he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But the writer of the Hebrews says, as it is, he, that is Christ, has appeared once for all, that is once for all time, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that's Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. So the earthly copies of the, the tabernacle, the temple, were purified with the blood of promise. 
but the heavenly things with the blood of actual propitiation, the completed performance of atonement. So Jesus suffered once, died once, rose once, ascended once, and offered his own blood once for all in heaven's holy of holies so that our redemption is paid off once for all. Amen and hallelujah. That's good news. Then he continues, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust. Uh, the word is dikaios. It's related to the word dikaiosune, which is usually translated righteousness. But it depends on the translation you're reading as to whether uh, this is translated righteous or just. So, for example, if we look up here at the New American Standard Bible, Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, but the ESV has it. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Um, the idea there, the, the term for just and the term for righteous or righteousness are related to one another, dikaios and dikaiosune. We usually think of justice as being fairness, right? Equity. You know, uh, are, are we all being treated fair? But in the end, what we're talking about here is God's standard, right? God created the world. God designed the world. Uh, the world operates in accordance with God's laws. There's a moral law over the world. And so uh, the, uh, the observance of an alignment with the moral law is righteousness. We're not righteous because we just kind of do what we feel or what we think is right. We're righteous when we do what God says is right, what he's decreed is right. And God is not making these decrees uh, randomly, capriciously. Uh, this is in accordance to the way, uh, in fact, it says in Ephesians that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. So um, it has often been asked, are things right because God says they are right or does God say they are right? because they were already right. The reality is things are right because they flow from his nature. God is right. And so what he creates flows from his nature. This is also why truth doesn't change because truth comes from the unchanging God. So as the result, whatever is related to God is going to share those qualities with God. Right. So it's going to share that eternal quality, that unchanging quality, that immutability that God has. So that is the nature of righteousness, of truth, of justice and so forth. So. Um, so the righteous for the unrighteous, more literally, the righteous one singular for unrighteous people, plural. The righteous one, of course, is Christ uh, suffered once for sins for unrighteous people. That's you and I. Um, that's so he could be the substitute who died in our place, bearing the punishment we deserved. That's what Wayne Grudem says in uh, his uh, commentary in the Tyndale uh, New Testament commentaries. Um, that's the essence of the atonement. The sinless savior become, became sin or becomes sin and dies to pay the death penalty that you and I owe. Okay, the wages of sin is death. We owe the death penalty. That's why people die. We think we die because we're biological organisms and the body just kind of runs down. But it's interesting. When you're young, your cells continue to reproduce. They regenerate. When you hit about 24, 25, 26, they regenerate more slowly than they die. 
And so you begin to die. Scientists don't know why that happens. Why? I, technically, we could just keep on living. We're unlike the universe, which is a closed system and subject to entropy. We're an open system. We receive energy from the outside. We eat food and, well, you know, we breathe oxygen and so forth. Technically, we should just be able to just keep on living. And, you know, if you look at the Old Testament account, you have these people living tremendously long lives. And uh, then the Lord says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Uh, and then he limits his, his lifespan. Well, in the beginning, in Eden, God laid it out. He said, if you sin, you will die. Well, Adam and Eve sinned, but they didn't immediately just drop dead as, the real, as though the, the fruit from the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were poison. But it separated them from God, who is the source of life and the author of life. And so kind of like your phone, right? This is unplugged right now from the wall. It's got a battery in it and it's going to run down until it dies. And it's going to just be a brick instead of a phone until I can find a charger to plug it back into. Eternal life is a gift from God. And so until you and I are able to plug back into the source of life, then our life runs down and down and down. We die and then we're judged and then we're destroyed in hell if we don't have that reconnection to God, the author and the source of life. Right. Um, so that's what we need to understand. This is the essence of the atonement. Um, I like uh, what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, that's Christ, became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we, we change places. You and I sin, big ways, small ways, we sin, right? All sins are not equal, but all sins are equally capable of separating us from God. A little white lie is not the same as murder, no matter what your preacher told you. But a little white lie is just as capable of separating you from God as murder. And so in the end, it can have the same horrific consequence, which is death and hell and no hope for eternity. Right. So uh, I owe a debt. That there, there, there's an old song we used to sing when I uh, first became a believer. Uh, I owe a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. All right. But that's the truth. I owe a debt that I can't pay um, or I can, but then that's it. That's the end of me. But he paid a debt he didn't owe. He was the righteous one and he paid my sin debt. Um, he became my sin on the cross. So God accepts Christ as a sacrifice in my place for me and as me. He dies in my place. I admit that I'm a sinner. I accept this sacrifice and I receive Christ into my innermost being. And that's why and how I'm saved. So how about you? Have you received Christ? Have you admitted that you're a sinner? Have you put your faith in this son of God who came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then offers you and I eternal life? That is salvation. And that's what this verse is talking about, right? So it continues, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So this, the, the, the purpose of this is reconciliation, to bring us back to God. Then it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Um, NIV has it, 
put to death in the body, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about physical death. The term flesh is used in a very broad sense uh, in the New Testament. It can refer to the sinful nature. It can refer to our natural self apart from God. Uh, as, the, as I indicated on, uh, on Sunday in the scripture where the apostle Paul talks about spiritual warfare. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Well, he was using that in the same way that Peter is using it here, meaning walking in the natural, right? So uh, NIV is clarifying by saying, put to death in the body. Jesus physically, literally died on the cross. This is an indisputable historical fact. Even secular historians who don't believe in the resurrection will align themselves with this reality that there was a man named Jesus uh, in Palestine in the first century who was put to death by the Romans under Pontius Pilate. In spite of that, this fact is rejected by Islam. Muslims do not accept the fact that Christ died on the cross. And that is because uh, Muhammad refused to accept it. Here's what it says in the Quran. Christians and Jews have corrupted their scriptures. Although Christians believe Issa, this is their name for Jesus. Although Christians believe Issa died on a cross and Jews claim they killed him. In reality, he was not killed or crucified. And those who said he was crucified lied. Issa did not die, but ascended to Allah. That's their name for God. On the day of resurrection, Issa himself will be a witness against Jews and Christians for believing in his death. And in so doing, our Muslim friends cut themselves off from salvation uh, by denying the very act of atonement, Christ dying on the cross. So this is why, although this, this might seem obvious and perhaps even unnecessary to state something like this, it is actually absolutely essential that you and I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day. That's the earliest uh, encapsulation of the gospel, presentation statement of the gospel uh, found in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, what I received, I delivered to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's what we need to believe in order to be saved. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Obviously, if God raised him from the dead, he had to have died. Then you will be saved. With the mouth you for the heart you believe and you are made righteous with the mouth you confess and so are saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is um, Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. Okay. So um, for those who would like to argue in favor of the Quran, it should be noted that the Quran was written over five centuries, 500 years after the New Testament. That's a huge amount of time. The United States hasn't even been in existence for 500 years. So just consider that. And I'm not trying to uh, disparage or degrade Islam or uh, or Muhammad or anything like that. But when, it's, when we're talking about Jesus, we need to look at the New Testament. We need to look at the Gospels. Um, and the good news is that the, the Savior of the world died for our sins. And if you can't agree that he died, then you cut off salvation for yourself. Jesus died and was raised. It says he was made, made alive in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that he was just 
you know, symbolically raised that um, that he was raised in in some uh, non corporeal way. Right. Uh, the the resurrection body is in some manner physical, but not material like your body and my body. As I indicated earlier, our bodies are corruptible. Right. We you know, we begin to die at a point in time. But Jesus' resurrected body was never to die again. That resurrected body is a spiritual body. We don't always have to think of spiritual as not having any substance to it. It's not just the material in these dimensions where we live that have substance to them. Christ's body was a spiritual body, and it was capable of uh, translating. He was capable of translating himself through material walls. I mean, the the disciples on that first Sunday night were gathered together. They were scared. The doors were locked and boom, Jesus appears in their midst. And they're scared. They think he's a ghost, right? Now we think of a ghost. That's the way we usually think of a spirit, a spirit, a ghost, something that is immaterial. That's sort of, you know, sort of there, sort of not there. You can kind of see through it, you know, try to put your hand out there. And Jesus said, no, here, look, um, Give me some, give me some fish to eat. And he ate right there in front of him. And then the next Sunday he appeared, Thomas had said, uh, quote unquote, doubting Thomas had said, unless I put my finger in the wounds in his hand and put my hand in his side where they stuck the spear, I will not believe. And so there's Jesus the second Sunday and he holds out his wounded hands and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. And he lifts up his, his garment and he says, put your hand here. All right. Don't disbelieve, believe. And Thomas, you know, at that point, he said, my Lord and my God made the greatest confession in all of scripture. But both of these are indications that the spiritual body is not a ghost. Right. And there are those that would like to like to take this passage and say, well, Jesus resurrection was really just spiritual. And what they mean was is it's kind of an ideal thing. It's uh, sort of symbolic. In other words, there's not a real corporeal presence that people can put their trust in and put their hope in. It's sort of kind of, it's like the way some people think of God as an idea rather than a person or presence. No, Jesus uh, was raised in the spirit and that didn't mean symbolically, right? Um, It doesn't mean he was invisible or even intangible, but in the supernatural or the spiritual realm, which may manifest itself in our own natural world at times and which may be perceived by faith. So when angels appeared to people throughout the scripture, right? Gabriel appears to a number of people in the birth accounts. He's literally there in front of them. Gabriel is an angel. He's a spiritual being who exists in a, in, a, in, a, in a realm in heaven or the heavens beyond ours. And this is something I mentioned Sunday as well, right? The heavens, uh, call it a set of dimensions above and beyond the four dimensions that you and I perceive of, of width and breadth and height, the depth and, and time, right? Uh, we're talking about a set of dimensions that in a, in a sense we could say superimposes itself over our dimensions, but which outside of faith, we don't perceive. But those who exist in that set of dimensions can penetrate into our spatio-temporal existence and be seen and even at times be touched and have uh, 
uh, impinge upon or or have causal action against anything here in the world. So um, what happens when someone is raised and Jesus was raised, the first uh, bo- firstborn uh, among the dead, um, he is able to uh, to transition back and forth between the heavenlies and our set of dimensions here. Right. So. Um, Jesus said this, and I think this, this will help us. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. If you believe in me, then even though you die, you will live. You'll live on spiritually. And then he goes on to say, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So if you live in the spirit, you will go on living in the spirit and never die. So, uh, once we're alive in the spiritual, we'll never su- we're never subject to death again. Um, Grudem in the in the Tyndale New Testament commentary on First Peter writes, "Quote, but made alive in the spirit, in view of the contrast noted above, must mean made alive in the spiritual realm, in the realm of the spirit's activity." Here it refers specifically to Christ's resurrection because made alive must be the opposite of put to death in the previous phrase. In the spiritual realm, the realm of the Holy Spirit's activity, Christ was raised from the dead. This is important because in the New Testament, generally this spiritual realm is the realm of all that is lasting, permanent, and eternal, right? So that's what it means that he was made, um, he's put to death in the body or in the, in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, right? Listen to what it says in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul writes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That is when we die, we're sown, we're planted in the earth, right? Um, it's perishable. It, it passes away. What is raised though is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Listen to that again. It is sown a natural body. That's the flesh. It is raised a spiritual body. That's what we're talking about when it says that Christ was died in the flesh, but was raised in the spirit. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Friends, that's what we're looking forward to. You're not going to live the way you are now forever. And for, you know, for some of us, we're excited about that. Um, And we're looking forward to a greater uh, resurrection. Now, in which, that is in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is a difficult passage, actually. Um, In this spiritual body, let's first make the case, Jesus is free to come and go on earth. He may also visit those in the realm of the dead, right? That's those in prison. The Old Testament word for the realm of the dead is Sheol. The Greek word for that is Hades. Sometimes that is translated, or I would say mistranslated in older uh, English translations, hell. But Hades is not hell. It's the Greek equivalent to this holding place, if you will, um, this place where the departed souls go to await judgment. That was the concept in the Old Testament. That's the term Sheol. Those who inhabited this place were called shades. This is where we kind of get our 
our idea of ghosts, if you will, not that the shades could come and go on earth, but this is the Hebrew idea that the, this is a, an impermanent uh, existence that it's waiting for judgment day, essentially. Okay. Um, in his resurrection body, Jesus is free to be here with us in the heavenlies or there in Sheol. Um, again, that should not be confused with hell, which is the final destination for the reprobate after the judgment. That is for the unsaved, for those who have clearly rejected Christ. Revelation calls hell the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, where anyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life is destroyed. That's what it says in Revelation 2015. Therefore, the prison spoken of here represents the intermediate place where the rebellious await judgment. The example given of its prisoners is those whom God removed from the earth in the flood that Noah survived by believing God and obediently building a boat. That's how Noah survived. He believed God and he obeyed. There's a lot of folks that say they believe, but they won't do anything about it. And that's why James said faith without works is dead. That's just a statement that may be a feeling, but that's not faith. Faith results in action. This idea of proclaiming, right? Uh, it says that uh, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Proclaimed what? It doesn't say what he proclaimed. Well, let's look at what the word proclaim means in Greek. Um, it means to make an official announcement, to make known or to make public declarations, to proclaim aloud. Uh, that's from uh, Bauer, Art and Gingrich's uh, lexicon. So two questions then. What did Jesus announce or declare? That's number one. And two, when did our Lord make such a pronouncement? Well, if we move forward several verses into chapter four, we read this. This is chapter four, verse six of our same book, First Peter. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So are we to believe that after death, there's a second chance at repentance? If so, this is only available to those who didn't hear the gospel while on earth, or is this only available to those who didn't hear the gospel on earth or to anyone? Well, in, in Ephesians, we read something that may uh, cast some light on this. This is Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, and it's quoting a psalm, a messianic psalm. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. All right. So number one, then, it would seem that Jesus proclaimed the good news that he has, in fact, secured eternal, eternal redemption, release of the captives, and salvation to those who will turn from disobedience. So that's the, that's the, the, uh, the content of the declaration. It's, it's the gospel, right? He's saying, I, it is finished. I have completed redemption, right? Number two, he proclaimed this to those in Sheol or Hades who had died prior to Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. The example of whom in our passage is those who died in the great flood. 
So what would the response to the gospel be for those who are, are dead? I believe death has no ability to change hearts and minds. So in other words, if you rejected Jesus here, you're not going to suddenly change your mind just because you died. If you don't want to have anything to do with God here, you're not going to suddenly want to spend eternity with God after you've died. All right. Um, death doesn't change who you are. You decide and determine who you are really by a series of decisions that you make throughout this life, right? Death simply ends our sojourn on earth where we have either chosen to pursue God or pursue self-interest to prepare for eternity or to live for the exigencies and the pleasures of earth. Christ led forth the host of captives. These were the people who had faith in God as he was revealed to them while they were on earth, but had no knowledge of Christ or his gospel. Right? So uh, these would be like the prophets, like Isaiah, even though he prophesied or his disciples in some cases prophesied and gave messianic prophecies, it doesn't mean that they understood the mystery of the gospel. Right? What about Abraham? Well, we already see an example of Abraham uh, being in heaven in scripture, uh, we see Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they didn't hear the gospel, right? And there were plenty of people prior to Christ's life on earth um, who had never heard the gospel. Do they just automatically go to hell? Are they just destroyed for eternity? Well, I think here we have hope that as they had put faith in God, as he was revealed to them, they would positively respond to the gospel that he proclaimed. So Jesus is not really giving people a second chance so much as he is affirming the choice that they had already made on earth, if that makes sense. So if they had already made steps toward Christ um, or toward God, as he reveals himself to them, then they would be receptive to the gospel. And we would find that here on earth now. All right. So there are plenty of people in the world today that have never heard of Jesus. Are they going to go to hell because Christians are too selfish or now in the you know world of COVID, we can't even go to their nation to proclaim the gospel to them. What if they don't have an internet connection and can't go on YouTube like some of you are right now and listen to the gospel? Do they just go to hell? No, I don't think so. People are not responsible for what they have not heard. They are responsible for what they have heard and what they have experienced, Right. The Apostle Paul makes this clear for what can be known about God is plain to them for God has made it plain to them for ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his uh, eternal power and uh, divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That's Romans 1, 19 and 20. People are without excuse because God has revealed himself, continues to reveal himself to them in creation and through their conscience that's constantly available. Those who are receptive are going to be receptive to the gospel when it's proclaimed. Those who are rejecting God as he reveals himself in nature and in their conscience will reject the gospel. So um, no one is going to have an excuse when they stand before God on judgment day. God is absolutely just, and he's not going to send anybody to hell who wants to be with him and who would put faith in him for eternity. Right. Um, 
So those who have not heard the gospel will not go to hell because of a lack of opportunity. We're only accountable for the amount of truth or the amount of light we could say made available to us and how we respond to it. Those who would have received the gospel had it been preached to them will respond favorably to Christ on the day they stand before his judgment seat. Those who rejected God on earth will feel and act no differently on the other side of the grave. All right. So let's continue on. It says, because they formerly, this is talking about those uh, in Noah's day. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, that's Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this just sounds difficult and obscure, and there are those that believe that water baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation, called soteriological baptism, who would appeal to this passage. But um, I want to help us to understand what this is speaking of. As the ark separated Noah and his family from the condemned earth, so baptism acts as a separation between us and a lost world between us and the world. Um, baptism is the biblical confession of faith. So earlier you heard the scripture, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? The apostle Peter in his first sermon, um, the first gospel sermon, by the way, said, repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for the, does that mean baptism causes the remission of sins? As I said earlier, faith results in action. If someone can be baptized and there are those who physically health wise, whatever, couldn't be water baptized. Perhaps we would need to do something different with them than a typical baptism by immersion, which uh, gospel oriented churches like ours would do. But nonetheless, um, baptism is the confession of faith. It is an identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the uh, Apostle Paul teaches very clearly in Romans 6, 1 through 7. And he helps us to understand in that passage that it is our identification with Christ in baptism that causes us not to want to pursue sin. All right. So what, is, what does Paul say in that passage? This is Romans 6 again. Uh, he, he says, since we've received grace, does that mean we should go on and sin that grace may increase? And he said, may that never be. Or do you not know that those of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the death through the glory of the Father, so we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. And then he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we might no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is no longer a slave of sin. We die with Christ in baptism. We identify with his death in baptism. This is a teaching that is really, I don't find uh, often in the church today. Um, so when Peter begins speaking of baptism in our passage, he's apparently referring to the same thing as Paul does in Romans 6. Through baptism, we die and are raised. 
For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In baptism, we identify with Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Baptism, which corresponds to this, uh, to Noah being brought through the water, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Notice he's saying baptism is not washing away your sins. There are those who say, oh, baptism washes away your sins. Peter uh, plainly contradicts that here. He says, no, it's not like removing dirt from the body, removing filth from the flesh. Okay. Um, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our conscience recognizes the symbolism present in baptism. And through it, we appeal to God that just as Christ died and was raised, we believe we shall follow. He was the righteous one who died an unrighteous death in order for unrighteous people like us to have his righteousness imputed. That means seen as being part of us, even though we have not uh, generated righteousness. When we admit that, um, that that death should have been ours, Christ's death should have been yours. Christ's death on the cross should have been mine. That's why Christ doesn't just die for us. He dies as us. He dies as Daryl on the cross and he's buried and he's raised. When I see myself that way, then I walk above sin. Because I see that that's not who I am anymore. Whatever the temptation that is coming my way, whatever the world and the world is increasingly departing from biblical values and, and from Christ and trying to make us believe that a lot of things that are, are, you know, filthy, vile, worthless are, are okay, acceptable. When I recognize that I'm in Christ, I say, you know, it's not just that that's wrong because there's a law in the Bible somewhere that says it's wrong. It's wrong because that's, that's not who Christ was. And that's not who I am. We're different people in Christ. And that's what baptism is doing here. It's helping us to understand our identification with Christ. Right. Um, and then just as Jesus was raised uh, from the dead, literally in a, a supernatural body, so you and I who are in Christ will be raised similarly one day. Um, so rather than giving into temptation as a way of alleviating su the suffering that we go through because we're being tempted um, and that suffering results from denying self, not just denying myself something I want, but, but not denying myself. We go through suffering with the purpose of identifying with Christ once we identify our trial or temptation with his sufferings, listen to what it says in the very next verse uh, and uh, chapter four, verse one, it says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's God's ultimate purpose is to get us to live for him and for his will. That's what heaven is. Heaven is me in the presence of God. Heaven is not, you know, what dreams may come that nineties movie where I just kind of imagine my own paradise. Okay. No, heaven is me in God's place. Me in, you know, this immediate presence of this, this, uh, this awesome, holy God. So my will has to be aligned with his will. That's what this is about down here. It's you and I getting ourselves in line 
with God. It's you and I making the decision as to whether we are willing to follow Christ or not, whether we're willing to prepare for heaven or not. Once we identify with his sufferings, then we're empowered to go through them and to emulate the obedient son of God who did the will of his father. We become Christ-like and fulfill the will of God. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's will for you. People are like, well, I don't know what God's will for me is. Do I need to go here or go there or do this or do that? Well, there may be specifics that God uh, has in mind for you, right? A job change, uh, you know, buy this, don't buy that, you know, move into this house, don't move into that house. Millions of decisions we make each day. But in the end, God's will for you and I is to become more like Jesus. That's what God is seeking to do. We follow Jesus. We seek to become more like Jesus. All right. So that's tonight's Bible study. And I appreciate those of you guys that joined us uh, via Zoom and our couple of folks that are here. I pray that you all are blessed and uh, that you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your Wednesday. All right. If you have any questions, text me. God bless you guys.